What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Van Chats. My name is John Kroom and on this episode of Coffee and Van Chats we chat with Payson McKelvin. Payson McKelvin is a professional mountain biker based out of Durango, Colorado. And when he's not in Durango, he's probably parked in his van somewhere in California living the life. I'm really stoked on this chat with Payson because usually our paths probably wouldn't cross because of our disciplines. But honestly, Payson has probably one of the coolest backgrounds of privateering as well as being an entrepreneur. He's pretty much started a program from the ground up. When most people probably would have quit, Payson kept trucking on to chase his dream. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. But first, let's hear a message from our sponsors. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button as well as leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. This episode is also brought to you by Beetroot Pro. I've actually been using this product way before it was ever even a sponsor of the podcast. And yeah, it's actually the first beetroot powder that I've found that mixes up well and doesn't taste like dirt. So it's a win-win for sure. Uh, you gotta check it out. It's fast absorbent patented with NO3 nitrate technology and it includes muscle building vegan BCAAs, magnesium, potassium, and vitamin B12. Like I said, I've been using this at World Cups all the way to now my quarantine campaign. So check it out at beetrootpro.com. Welcome back to Coffee and Van Chats. I'm here with Payson McKelvin. And yeah, he's a professional mountain biker, uh, gravel racer. And on top of that, he's an entrepreneur. I mean, I really latched onto this guy when I started seeing some of his podcasts and his content. And really, yeah, he's just out there and getting it and hustling and working hard. So Payson, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for being on. So I, I really kind of wanted to get your your take on like where you even got started with this. I mean, you know, just for me and my background, like I started loving cycling and then all of a sudden it turned into a job one day. But if mm -hmm. I look back, that's like six, seven years of just hard work, you know, waking up at 5 a.m., going to bed at 10 p.m. kind of things, you know, trying to fit training in, meet people and make connections. So where did that kind of all start for you? Like even back when you got into cycling? Yeah, so um, I I mostly rode recreationally with my dad as a as a kiddo. It was just one of the many different ways I played outside. Yeah. Um, I was definitely into more traditional stick and ball sports. Um, played basketball, flag football, did track and field, ran a little bit of cross country, all that sort of thing, all through high school, um, and then kind of had this recurring knee injury um, in basketball that sort of pushed me out of that. Um, and also during that time when I was mostly more in middle school, but a little bit in high school, uh, were the years that Lance Armstrong was just dominating the sport. And he oh, yeah. actually lived just 15 minutes away from where I grew up. So not only was he kind of local hero, but he was, you know, hero of all of cycling. And so that kind of kept it front of mind for me more than it probably would have otherwise. Um, and I remember I'd always watched the day's stage of the Tour de France and then go out on our little country road and kind of like reenact it as a kid and like mimic yeah. Phil and Paul's voices announcing it and be like, Oh, I'm dropping Jan Ulrich now. And you know, <laughs> kid, kid, kid stuff, just acting out, acting no, out awesome. uh, what I saw. And I always had this dream of being a professional cyclist right up and through, you know, age 12, 13. And, I just kept talking about it. And finally, one day, my parents were like, you know, if you if you want to be a pro cyclist, you should probably go try a race. Um, and so we found a local mountain bike race 
just because it seemed like mountain biking was going to be a little bit more accessible for someone that had never raced. Yeah. Um, and I did my first mountain bike race. And so that's kind of how I started on that trajectory, but it was never a thing where my parents pushed me to do anything. There was no, uh, there was no like, uh, you know, soccer mom, hardcore summer camps, like you're headed down this athletic trajectory. It was just whatever I wanted to do. Um, and I'm not really sure why, but with bike riding, um, I just immediately wanted to work hard at it and it was not, I enjoyed basketball, but I wasn't the, the kid that was going to extra summer camps and, you know, hiring a secondary shooting coach or anything like that. Um, I don't know why, but I just was, was very uh, excited to work really hard on my own, um, at cycling, even though I knew I was going to be the only one in my area doing it. Uh, no one else in my school did it. Uh, I grew up pretty rurally, um, didn't really have any, you know, my closest friend was a 15, 20 minute drive away. Closest trail network was at least a 20 minute drive away. Um, so there were kind of barriers in place that a few barriers in place that I, in hindsight, don't really know why I latched on to cycling, but long story short, I did at age 14 and just kind of ran with it. Um, and again, I'm not exactly sure why, but started to develop an interest in the business side too. Yeah. Um, and the, all, all of the stuff besides the racing part, I started to enjoy as well. Um, I have a creative streak, I guess, that just has to get itched pretty frequently. Yeah, yeah. I really love the competition, but it doesn't give me complete fulfillment. I could never be the kind of bike racer who trains and then goes home and plays video games, takes a nap, eats, goes to sleep, does it again the next day. Like there's no way I could find fulfillment in that. Yeah. So I, I bet um, like sitting still during this whole coronavirus thing has been pretty hard. Like, cause like now we've, we've niched yeah. off no racing. Yeah, it's funny. I, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, um, I certainly miss racing. Absolutely. But uh, I'm pretty good at making myself busy. And so I immediately just filled in other projects. And now I'm at least as busy um, as, as I would be during the race season. In some ways, the race, I'm, I'm less busy during the race when there's racing because there's more structure mm, yeah. and uh, you have to, you know, stay a certain amount of focused on racing. But um, anyway, uh, just, I guess, just briefly to finish this point, um, I moved to Durango, Colorado when I was 18 when I graduated high school because it seemed like this was the place to be if I wanted to become a professional cyclist and sure enough I showed up here and realized that wow I'm actually not that good <laughs> and had a whole yeah. had, had a whole lot of uh, work to do um, and this community was just so incredibly welcoming from the very beginning and um, I was fortunate to get some opportunities with the the big local professional development team I guess you'd call it uh, the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory team that um, Howard Grotz came out of, of Sarah Sturm, Teal Stetson Lee, a lot of uh, great riders came from yeah. that program. And I got a couple of years with that program, which helped a lot. Um, and then it folded when I was 20, 20, 21. Um, and at that time I didn't have result. I wasn't one of these U23 or junior riders who was knocking off national championships left and right. Yeah. Um, I took, a little bit longer to develop and fill in the gaps in my game. I think because I grew up in central Texas and, and I didn't grow up in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and so basically I didn't have results that would merit getting a big contract of any kind. So I basically had to teach my, like you said, teach myself to be an entrepreneur if I wanted to keep racing at a, a pro level. And that meant starting my own program when I was 21 and basically doing what we call 
privateer. Um, and over the course of six months, I had to teach myself everything from writing a business proposal to how to use Photoshop to everything in between. Um, I made it work and ended up having a really well-funded program that year. Um, and then luckily the year after things started to click and I got more opportunities, but that year where I had to do it all myself has kind of stuck with me and gave me some skills that I use every day now. Yeah. Um, and I, entrepreneur is, is a funny word. I don't know why I have a gut reaction to it. Like I, I get that that in a way that that's what I am, but yeah. for some reason I think of, you know, a, a guy in Silicon Valley that wears you know, <laughs> su- sweatshirts and, and, uh, you know, is, is for some reason that's what entrepreneur comes Gets to mind for me yeah yeah for, I, i'm just doing what i want to do and what my gut tells me might be a good idea and uh Not in right some on. ways just kind of follow my nose but yeah i guess it is pretty entrepreneurial at this point <laughs> yeah yeah no like and, and you made it sound so easy like especially coming from like even myself like coming up from the ground up in the sense of trying to start my own programs, being a bigger dude. I wasn't the best crit rider, but I was a great track racer. And so like, I couldn't find a team to be a part of, but then I couldn't afford to go to the races that I wanted to go to. And it kind of sounds similar to you in the sense of like, you're a great mountain biker, but there's not a lot of teams more or less that are signing riders like a 10, 12, 15 man roster, like a road team would. So it sounds like either you had to find money or you had to get a job uh, and move on. And yeah. so when, when that clicked, I think, you know, what would be great for this is like, like talk about how hard that was, you know, the first, you know, just getting the, getting it started or was it hard? Cause I know for like people like me, I get messages all the time. It's like, Hey man, I would love to get started doing X. How do I get started doing X? I doubt Red Bull just was like, yeah, we're down. We'll, we'll give yeah. you some money and you can start <laughs> yeah. a team. Good luck kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there is no playbook. I I get asked that question all the time. And to be totally honest, um, I have no problem telling everybody everything about how it went uh, and how, you know, what I did to be in the position that I am now, because I know everybody's different. Mm -hmm. And if it can help someone, great, but I'm not worried about someone coming up and, you know, taking food out of my mouth or taking a sponsorship opportunity off the table from me because every single when you're creating something from the ground up like there there is no textbook like you can't you can't copy what someone else did and apply it to you it's kind of like training I mean people ask me sometimes why I put every single ride I do on Strava with power and heart rate data and I'm like like what is someone gonna do that's my favorite go do the exact same wattage I did and then magically you know go win a race like that's it that's not that's not how it works at all like I'm I'm, I would much rather people be able to see that I'm human and see that I have good days and see that I have bad days and, and see the, the data to back that up rather than this black box of like, holy shit, he did a five hour ride at 22 miles an hour. You know, what is that? Who knows what that power looks like? So anyway, point being tangent. Um, it was really hard. I mean, the, yeah. it literally took that, that year where I had to create a program of my own. I was still in college, uh, had a couple of years in college left. Um, it was six months full on blinders on hundred percent focus, uh, problem solving one. Yes. For every 99 no's. Yeah. Um, it, it was just like, I, I wasn't going to take no for an answer. Um, and I mean, for full transparency, that year I had 
an operating budget of a little under $20,000, but I wasn't really paying myself anything. Yeah. Like it was enough to cover my expenses to get, to keep, to keep this uh, thing rolling of trying to prove myself as someone that was deserving of a, of a real pro contract. But it also gets back to this conversation of how, how much of a spectrum and gray area our sport is like, what is pro athlete? Like, is it because you hold a pro license and you compete at a professional level or is it that you earn some of your income doing this professionally? Or are you a pro if you earn all of your income doing this? Like it's, it's sort of weird. And so I was racing in the pro category, but for all intents and purposes at that time, I was a semi pro, like in terms of profit, I was taking home maybe $5,000 a year. What do you designate as a pro then? In that sense. I don't know. I don't think it's yeah. really for me to decide. Um, I personally, I didn't really feel like I was a pro until it was my profession, AKA yeah. I wasn't doing anything else to support myself. But again, it's not really for me to decide. Um, anyway, point being, um, it wasn't glamorous by any means that that year, uh, the following year I got an opportunity with a, a team called the competitive cyclist team, which was, lasted for just one year uh that year i wasn't really getting paid either it's just sort of prize money and bonus sort of situation uh the year after that uh show air um had a long-standing factory team and they sort of morphed into this much bigger team that had a larger roster and that year i was starting to get paid a little bit more real yeah. but again it, it wasn't a wage that anyone would want to live on and so I was kind of looking to, and at this point I was still focused on Olympics, World Cup, uh, you know, trying to go this traditional cross-country racer route. And the more I learned about the sport and the more I talked to people, I realized that at the end of the day, all of this is about, like, when you get to do this for a living, it's because you're, you're doing a job for brands. You, you are a marketing entity. And at the end of the day, you don't get paid to race your bike you get yeah. paid to sell stuff and the most traditional way to do that is to race your bike yeah um chris Froome gets paid because it's good marketing for ineo for ineos he doesn't get he gets paid to win the tour de france almost secondarily and i think that's what a lot of people lose sight of and so as i as i was starting to learn this and get more experience and do some of my own research um especially outside of the sport i think that's one of the most beneficial things um that i ended up doing was was almost closing my eyes to the bike industry sometimes and just looking at other industries that seem to have it more figured out other sports other industries that's sort of thing. anyway yeah um i started to realize that for this world cup style of racing there were if you wanted to have a true career there are a very small handful of people in the United States that can race full-time cross country and have it be a real career. Because once you're outside the top 15 on the world cup results wise, no one really cares. It's not all that market. It's just not all that marketable. And so if you're the very best in the United States, you have opportunities because you're on that Olympic trajectory, um, that sort of thing. But there are so few spots there that, um, I started to think about, you know, well, how can I have an impact on the sport? Because that wasn't feeling satisfying for me. And then at the same time, I had this opportunity to go race this event in Mongolia called the Mongolia Bike Challenge. Okay. And I had this incredible experience where I raced my bike six days across Mongolia, had oh, this insane, yeah. yeah, had this insane adventure, won the race by the skin of my teeth, and all of a sudden got an interview in Outside Magazine. And I was like, 
whoa, holy shit. Like why, why does outside care about this, but they could care less about USA cycling cross country nationals. And all of a sudden the, the megaphone that I was given in that moment was so much huger and sponsors started coming out of the woodwork and opportunities were just like dropping yeah. into my lap. And I was like, wait a second. And I sort of had this light bulb moment where I thought, you know, I'm sort of disenchanted with the world cup stuff for now. Um, not much in the way of opportunities are coming from there. This other style of racing that I really, really enjoy and, and simultaneously more opportunities are coming, you know, maybe we start sort of researching and mining this long story short, I started pivoting that direction, um, started building a race program and sponsorship and all that sort of thing around that style racing and my budget income, all that sort of thing just went like four or five X yeah, over you the course had of an income at this point. <laughs> yeah. Over the course yeah. of one off season, it was insane. Yeah. And, um, and the next year I won marathon national championships and that's yeah. when orange seal and Trek were like, Hey, this seems like a pretty good program. How would you feel if we took ownership of this program that you've built, manage it, own it, build some infrastructure around it. And you can just focus more on all the other stuff you want to focus on instead of the day-to-day -day running of that's the team. Awesome. Yeah. That was like kind of my next segue. It's like, now you have, cause what is Hannah Finchamp champ? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like both of you guys smashed mid South. And I was just like, man, from what I knew, this team was just you. And now you've yeah. brought on like hitters from out of the woodwork. I mean, what was the team from teammate from Europe? Remind me his name? Dennis Van Winden. Yeah. yeah. And so like you have, you have X world tour pros, you know, you know, mountain bike pros and they're just coming out of the woodwork. And I've watched a few of your episodes, which we'll put a link in the description below of the, um, the orange seal, you know, YouTube series, which is mm. kind of a bummer that COVID hit because that was, I know that was only know. Gonna be so good. Yeah, but just the mid south episode and looking at like, it's like you guys have been a team for ages. Mm. And, yeah. And, and like, you guys are like a family. And so mm. kind of like, how did where did that come from? Like, where did you yeah. where did all you guys meet? Yeah, good question. Yeah. So I mean, for all intents and purposes, like I said, in I guess it was 20, 2017. I was still running my own program yeah, mostly and then won nationals and that really sort of solidified things. That's where I got on the map with Red Bull. That's where Trek and Orange Seal said, we want to, we want to take ownership of this team. And it's funny that you say you think, you know, that was just me or that I just yeah. run the team because it's a very common misconception because that's the way it was for a while. But um, in terms of logistics and all that sort of thing, I don't do any of that anymore. You know, I don't book my own flights. I don't, um, order my own equipment, uh, any, it, all of that logistical stuff is taken care of. We have more staff now than we do riders. Wow. Um, and, and all of that came about from that humble little program that I started. And then, you know, it just kind of shows the difference, I guess, between a privateer program and then when the brands took ownership. And, and so in terms of who else is on the team now, a lot of people think that, you know, I go around and like pick and choose and manage the team and all that sort yeah, of you're thing. You're just and, like out, out in the schoolyard, like <laughs> you and yeah, you and yeah, you. <laughs> right. No, that's not the way it is at all. I mean, I, I get some input because I've, I've been here and I've been with Orange Seal for eight years at this point. They ask me my, my opinion or that sort of thing, but um, I don't get to choose who's on the team. I don't sign the riders. I have no idea what Hannah Finchamp makes salary wise. I have no yeah. idea what kai's bonus structure looks like like all of those things are, are are team manager managed um but in terms of how those how we became a family uh, a lot of it is just emphasis on um 
spending time together, especially early in the year. Uh, we had a couple of different women on the team previously that didn't work out uh, for various reasons. Some of it was just chemistry. Some of it was just difference in goals. Yeah. Um, it's pretty normal to kind of, you know, sort through, yeah. sort through roster for the first couple of years of a program, I think. But with Hannah, uh, she was coming from the Cliff Pro team. And she actually came to the team and she was like, hey, I, I would like a change of, change of scenery. These are my goals. They're not quite aligning with what Cliff wants me to do anymore. Um, and team manager John came to me and he was like, can you believe this? Like, Han Fincham, one of the best, hands down best <laughs> in the country, yeah. just like randomly wants to be on our team. What do you think? And I was like, that's awesome. Pretty sure that's a yes. Um, <laughs> And, and so we didn't say yes immediately, you know, there was try to play it cool. It's like, yeah, yeah. We'll think about it. Yeah. We need to fix that immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like dating. You don't want to yeah. come across as too eager too soon, but yes. <laughs> uh, point being, we, we had some little get togethers to get to know her better and realize that yeah. the chemistry was there. And so that's important to make it feel like a family. And then we have these big team camps um, that, uh, are, are more they're less training camp and more about getting on the same page getting to know each other uh i mean a full spectrum of emotions in those things too you know we'll be having the time of our lives and laughing about some you know playing pool one night and then another another night there'll be tears where we're having heart to hearts and you just yeah. everything that a family does have we try to create not create awesome. but just give the opportunity to come to fruition so i guess that's where that family dynamic comes from and dennis was just quickly on that dennis was another sort of random thing where uh he was pretty done with the world tour thing because he was honestly just tired of getting really hurt in crashes yeah. and he's still pretty young i think he's 30 30 30 31 in his prime yeah absolute monster of a bike rider i mean he he's so funny he he said you may not know my career because i have never won big <laughs> race but there was one year i went into arnberg forest first and i left arnberg forest first um <laughs> for those that don't know perry roubaix has this most notorious section of cobbles yeah. called the arnberg forest and it's where everything just explodes and i guess one year when he was on rabobank it was his job to like take care of his leader and he like went into armberg forest first left armberg forest first he was very proud of that but point being like That's the awesome. dude the dude has seen a lot and yeah. you mentioned mid-south earlier and he was so pivotal to success there but he just wanted a chain of scenery he saw the explosion of gravel and same sort of thing he came to the team and said hey what do you think and the team was like yep that sounds we'll, good we'll still play it cool we'll still we'll get back to you just don't make any other decisions we're still playing it cool here <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah so it's kind of a segue a little bit like into mid-south um you know there's one race of the year yeah you're undefeated that's kind of lame unfortunately <laughs> but you're undefeated yeah. right now that's unheard of yeah. in cycling so we can kind of joke about it yeah. um on the women's side and the men's side um but post mid-south so i did mid-south and i've talked about it several times on this podcast already where you know, I had bike issues and I can make all these complaints, but I think, dude, the winner had bike issues from what I've heard in a recent podcast with you, where it was just like, or it was an article or something. But one comment you said that really stuck out to me that I wanted to touch on was that if you had to get off your bike, you were running. Mm -hmm. Like what, like, what was your thought process in that? How was that? You know, kind of give us a little feedback on that. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, you know, that was one of the more unique races I think many of us have ever done. Yeah. Um, I mean, a few things for one, I was, uh, 
I was in a different headspace for that one. Typically, I'm someone that races out of happiness and and just the joy of competition and health and all that sort of thing. But um, that weekend, I was uh, I was in a very different headspace because a, a good friend of mine and very important person for the mountain bike community and Durango community uh, was hit and killed by a car not yeah, too yeah. long previously. Yeah. Honestly, one of the biggest names in, in North American mountain biking, Ben Sontag. And so I almost didn't go to the race. Um, his service was the same weekend. Um, yeah. And I actually had decided to go to the service instead of do the race. Yeah. And some of his friends that were closest to him really urged me to race basically saying that that's what what he would have done and and, mm -hmm. and would want me to do and so somewhat grudgingly I went to the race but kind of the upshot of that is when I got to the race I was like it, it doesn't really matter what the result is but if you don't ride as hard as you ever have and you don't give everything you possibly ever have and you don't ride for the both of you this weekend then like what are you doing yeah. Um, and so my motivation came from a very different place that weekend and I was very focused and I wasn't focused on like people talk about pressure when you're the, cause I won the year before and people are like, mm -hmm. do you feel the pressure? That sort of thing. I don't feel any pressure when it's an event like that. It's not like a national championship where you might lose the Jersey. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're familiar with that, no, that, sure. that there is more pressure I feel, um, with this, it's just another opportunity to get a good result. So I didn't feel any pressure from that sense, but I felt a huge amount of pressure internally. Um, and so I just wanted to go out and give a hundred percent. And that was the only goal. Um, yeah. if that was 11th place, fine. It was 11th um, place. Yeah. yeah. And so that mindset carried over into your question of why did I say I was always going to run? And it was just a matter of, a mindset thing in, in the scheme of things running with 30 pound mud shoes on maybe is, even heavier. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's probably it not. Insane. It's, it's probably not even really that faster than like power walking. Yeah. But it was, it was a mindset thing. You're in a race yeah. and when you're racing, whatever, whether it's cyclocross, whether it's a running race, whatever it is, you run. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be a hundred percent committed to that mindset of racing from wire to wire. And so that's why I, I made that rule for myself of just don't walk a single step. No, yeah, that was epic. Yeah. Cause that's one thing that is literally like, since I messaged you, I was like, I gotta ask him, man. Cause like that race was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, <laughs> yeah. I always tell yeah. people it's like the longest hundred miles I've ever done. And people look at me like, well, it's just muddy. It was like, dude, my bike weighed like what felt like 50 pounds. And then mm -hmm. to see Hannah, if you guys don't know who Hannah Pinchamp is like, She's like probably the size of my hand. Um, yeah. She's very small, but she's super powerful. And her bike had to weigh more than it was almost like half her body weight. Like it yeah. was insane. Um, yeah. So yeah, to see you guys like dominate that race and it was, it was unreal. Um, but yeah, so, so now, you know, you've been running a podcast for about a year now, uh, which we kind of chatted about, but you've, what I've latched onto is your quarantine companion. I think it's super cool. Uh, brings a new flair because it's just like three friends, four friends, however many people at the time. It's you and Justin, and you kind of are like different personalities in your own right. Like you like Chacos, he loves Jordans, and I'm not saying that you don't love Jordans, but the Chacos, <laughs> man, I'm, that cracks me up because there's no way Justin's on board with that. Um, no, but but 
like the the personalities that you guys have brought to this episode it's literally like three friends talking so like where did that stem from and where did like where were you guys like hey we need to do this because it looked like something that you guys have been working on even before quarantine yeah good question um well sort of it started when i was in la in january i want to say and we were doing this uh training camp um three of us it was colin strickland kate courtney and myself and we had an airbnb together um and we were just doing this little training camp and justin lives in the area and so one day we went for a coffee shop ride together we all had a recovery ride and then we're like hey man you want to join us for dinner and so he joined us for dinner and then I was like, Justin, we've been trying to get you on the podcast forever. It's kind of late, but are you willing to sit down and, and record? So we're in this Airbnb and Justin and I started recording and Colin and Kate were sitting in the living room too. <clears throat> and at one point, Kate was kind of like, hey, um, I, I have a question. Like, am I allowed to jump in here? And I was like, yes, Kate Courtney, you can have a celeb <laughs> shot. Yeah, yeah. You can have a celeb shot on, on this podcast. And before you know it, we had this four person round table discussion going. That's awesome. And it was this amazing scenario where it wasn't, we had nothing planned. Um, but I mean, Colin Strickland, winner of Kansas, Kate Courtney, mountain bike world champion, Justin Williams, everything that he brings to the table we all came from kind of different backgrounds. We had this, we just had awesome chemistry. And what I noticed was Justin kind of started to facilitate in a way. And I almost just like put down my mic. I did put down my mic. I gave it to Kate and I was just, you know, hands off, just kind of watching. And I was like, this is the sweetest accident ever in broadcasting. Like I'm so stoked right now. And then Justin kind of made the comment or I can't remember if it was Justin or me, but, um, we both agreed. We're like, man, co-hosting would be sweet because Justin brings a lot of charisma, a lot of experience. He's very savvy in front of a camera and mic. Um, and we just decided right then and there that at some point it would be cool to co-host. We didn't really know how that would happen because predominantly I live in Durango. He lives in LA. I spend a lot of time in LA these days, but not enough. Um, and then quarantine happened and we're like, well, we have to record over zoom. Um, this is the chance, like this is the opportunity. Justin, do you want to be the official co-host of, of this Zoom-based series? And uh, that was that. That's awesome, yeah. Because, I mean, so we did a podcast with, uh, or I guess we, I mean, I did a podcast with Chloe and mm. I know Chloe pretty well. And it was so funny to kind of even just hear her, like knowing her super well mm. on your guys' podcast. <laughs> that was hilarious. Dude, like, so just a quick Chloe story we when she talks about never losing like that's a serious thing like it's a real yeah. thing we're on our way to the track in belarus and you know and uh we walk in and she like all of a sudden wants to do this running race i don't know where it stemmed from i don't know where we got it i like think i made a con i was joking i was like i beat you and she's like no you didn't and i was like yeah i beat you and then we ran and i actually god i'm gonna get shunned for this i actually did beat her this time and then, this, and then the dude next you day, can't ever beat chloe I, in anything I, I know and i can't say it and honestly this podcast is probably gonna get taken down and i'm gonna go missing but i i did i did beat her and then the next time or it was within like a on the way back from the track or something we start running again and she's got a lead and i'm like no i still got this like the second gear is gonna kick in she takes her track bag helmet you know chain rings like clothes shoes straight in the gut I was down for the count and I was like, All no right. way. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It was, it was game over. And I was just like, okay, 
you win. I'm done. Not doing it. Not Dude, doing it. She's so, one of a kind. Yeah, she's probably gonna want to get back on the podcast just to correct this whole conversation mm-hmm. and give her give her stance. But uh, yeah, it was it was a bit intense. That's amazing. But, Anyways, I don't want to keep you all morning. So one thing before you leave, I just want to know like, hey, what are you doing in, in quarantine or well, not in quarantine, but just, you know, relaxing at home right now to prep, I guess, for either next season or whatever races to come. Yeah, well, right now, right now, um, I'm actually t- taking time off the bike, unfortunately. Um, I developed this weird chest thing. Oh, uh, I've, I've kind of had some shortness of breath for almost two weeks that gradually got worse. And then, uh, I was kind of playing it safe. And then I was like, ah, I wonder, is this just in my head? Like, have I, cause I've been doing a ton of high country. Am I going to make clickbait and be like, Payson thinks he has COVID. It's <laughs> like straight clickbait. And everybody's gonna click on it. <laughs> um, I don't know is the short answer, man. Cause I have no other symptoms. Um, yeah. but long story short, I, I, I went for a couple of longer rides and then I woke up the next morning and my, my chest was just pretty painful couldn't take a deep couldn't take a deep breath etc etc uh just completely put the bike away for five days didn't even look at it let alone ride it uh well maybe i looked at it a couple times like oh this sucks (laughs) um yeah but i went in i spent all day at hospitals last week one day last week just getting every test under the sun chest x-ray blood tests ekg all that sort of thing everything came back normal uh, got a COVID test. Haven't heard back on that yet, but, um, I would, I would be very surprised if it were COVID because I have absolutely no other symptoms Yeah, and it's the, the, the breathing thing has already gone away. I'm actually, yeah. after we finish recording, going to go for a super easy two hour ride here, but Sweet. long story short, um, I am as unfit right now as I have been <laughs> since the off yeah. season. Um, and so what I'm going to be doing is, uh, and, and you know how this is when you have some forced time off, you get that low grade panic, like, Oh no, my fitness is gone. And so I'm going to go back into full training mode a little bit and just get back to a baseline to where I feel like should racing pick up again, I'm within striking distance of, of race form. Um, so I'll be, I'll be training pretty seriously again here starting soon. Other than that, um, honestly, the podcast takes up a ton of time. Yeah. Um, I just have too many projects. Period. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're releasing a, a short film about the Everesting ride I did next week. So, you know, that's two phone calls and three hours of emails a day. Oh, man. Uh, we have two other stash TV episodes coming out in the next six weeks. So that's super full throttle. Um, all, you know, just all, all kinds of stuff. And then some, some project ideas regarding bigger, bigger rides um, that could be content pieces also. So there's already, or there's always Something two, to gonna, th- two to three yeah. too many irons in the fire. And I definitely need to work on work-life balance still, but that's kind of, yeah. My, well, my one answer. thing too, cause it just hit me, you know, I forget that everybody on this podcast doesn't have a van, but Pete Stetton has <laughs> a van. You mm. have a van. So just give us a breakdown of what your van is. Cause my van is like, I got this like little mini cargo van. It's a Dodge like a Dodge ProMaster City cargo. It's like a single bed. I'm mm-hmm. lucky to get me, the wife, the dog in there, a fridge. <laughs> but your van, it's like the Mac Daddy. I mean, it's these neat. Because you got it done at Van Life Customs, right? They uh, helped. They helped? They helped, but more from a consultation standpoint. I, uh, My dad and I actually did all the build out together. That's awesome. Which is, which is another kind of long story. I'll make it super short. But basically, no, I good. grew up. I grew up going to races in a 87 Westfalia Vanagon. 
yeah. with my mom and dad and one day it just burned to the ground in a grocery store parking lot like there's a fuel leak and it just like Jeez. and so it was kind of sad it was like losing yeah. a, a family member um and then i i moved away went to college moved to durango all that sort of thing and vi- driving to races and vans wasn't a thing anymore really yeah um and then van life really exploded and um i saw all of these people doing these really cool custom build outs themselves and learning how to do the builds themselves yeah. and it kind of struck me that uh my dad has all of these handyman skills he knows how to run electrical you know uh, plumbing everything build cabinets and when I was living at home as a teenager, I was always too busy to learn any of that from him and yeah. had massive regrets about that. I was like, he, here's this guy with all of these skills and I was always too cool to learn them from him. And now as yeah. a grown up, I really regret that. So I thought, you know what? I would love to get a van and use this as an excuse to drive it back home to Austin, see my parents and learn all of this tradesman stuff from my dad, uh, retroactively. And so that's what, that's what we did. And, and, uh, now I have this sweet van and I learned a lot doing the build out, but yeah, Stetna, man, I'm starting to wonder about that guy. Cause he has a mustache. He, has, <laughs> he recently got a van. I'm like, yeah, dude, I, I know you're trying to integrate here into the, into the grassroots, you know, off-road racing scene, but uh, might have to file a plagiarism lawsuit here soon. Uh, no, well, I'm, I'm, what if I'm he gets kidding. sponsored by monster? Oh just be boy. Like, they just send it through the roof, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Stutton and I are good. And I actually, we chatted quite a bit about Vans before he made the move on, on that one. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I love the van. It's, it's been such a good lifestyle for um, sure. investment for sure. For sure. Well, hopefully we can get you on again and hopefully we can maybe even get you in person, get a tour of the van and just kind of check things out. But again, yeah. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Payson, go out, enjoy your ride and hopefully you're getting healthy. So, Cheers, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate uh, you having me. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Bye. Yep. Catch you later.